Let's talk oral surgery. This is Marcus Huang. First, some housekeeping. I am playing around a little bit with the audio. I have noticed that it echoes a bit on my end, um, and that's because I live in a hardwood uh, studio, and that's very hard to isolate and edit out. And so right now, I am recording into a closet, and that might be why my voice sounds a little bit nasally, because there's a lot of dust in this closet. <laughs> anyway... Another item of uh, discussion is that in March next month, there will be the Women in OMFS Symposium hosted by the University of Michigan. And so if you are interested in learning about this, I would head over to the University of Michigan's website to sign up. The conference this year is talking a lot about the leadership of women in OMFS, some career development options, and some personal success stories that the leaders will be sharing. I'm very excited because I will be interviewing the founders of Women in OMFS Instagram page, and they have been a large part of the Women's Symposium, and we will have a great length discussion about Women in OMFS and the success stories associated with that, and also some recommendations to find mentors and connect with other women going through the same situation. And so I hope you all look forward to that. Now, this episode is a bit different than my other ones in that it is divided into two parts. The topic is ambulatory surgery centers, ASCs. In part one, my guests and I cover the history of ASCs and the relevance to OMS. Then we continue the conversation in part two to talk about the specifics in building ASCs. And also, my guest shares his experience building ASCs in his career. So stay tuned for that. It will be released in a couple of weeks. And some of you have e emailed me that I don't release my episodes regularly enough. And right now I'm on a every two week basis. And it seems sustainable with med school and with residency. And it's currently a one man show. So it takes a lot of time to draft the episode, record the episode with my guest, editing and then publishing. It does take some time. And so thank you for your patience. Additionally, thank you for the support that I've been getting so far. The podcast has reached international, and so I have listeners in, I don't know, places like South Korea, Mexico, Europe. And so the podcast is growing, and I thank you for tuning in and staying up to date with the episodes. I do read and respond to every email and comment that you send my way. And so if you have any comments or suggestions or criticisms, do send them my way, and I will be connecting with you. And don't forget to subscribe and to leave that five-star rating on your podcast medium. It helps with the whole algorithm helping listeners find the podcast. Before introducing my guest today, I do have to say something up front. And it's regarding a mistake that I made during the podcast. And this will make more sense as you listen. But towards the end of the podcast, around minute 50, I mentioned that orthognathic surgery, if it is done for gender dysphoria or gender transformation reasons, it is covered by the Medicaid or the state insurance in the state of Oregon. And I was wrong. I was quite inaccurate. What is the accurate statement is that that is being pushed for in the state of Oregon. Additionally, it seems like other insurance companies, so more private sector, have changed some of their rules in their coverage for facial surgery, normally deemed as a cosmetic or an elective surgery. It wasn't covered before. But for those 
experiencing gender dysphoria and undergoing gender affirmation surgery, in some cases, private insurance companies do cover uh, that procedure. And so I want to apologize for saying the wrong thing. Originally, I was going to edit out that mistake that I made in the podcast, but I thought it was important for listeners to gain insight on on what I was thinking about and the options going forward in finding ways to increase availability of orthopedic surgery and other OMS-related procedures for the community. So let's get on with the show. Today, I bring you Dr. Jeffrey Carter. He is an oral surgeon with a dental education background at the University of Connecticut, his medical education, and his OMS residency at Vanderbilt. He has held many academic and non-academic appointments, ranging from being chairman and director of the OMS residency at the Carl Foundation. He's been on Amos's CPT advisory committee. He's been on examining committees, and he has done it all. And to top it off, he started his own fellowship at the Oral Surgical Institute for some time, where his residents did a large volume of orthopedic surgery throughout their one-year fellowship there. Then Dr. Carter went on to start his own company called OMS Logistics, and this is another topic that I will be talking to him about on a different episode, but it is a company that he started to help facilitate anesthesia for the outpatient setting for other dental providers besides OMS. I feel like his CV is an entire episode in itself, so I'll stop here. Dr. Card and I touch on the history of ASCs for OMS in the United States, which is a pertinent topic because ASCs themselves have been around healthcare for quite some time, but relatively new for the OMS and may offer some avenues forward for some of you who want to practice larger cases outside of the hospital. We also touch upon the changes that has made ASCs and developing ASCs a bit more difficult recently, and the changes in reimbursement that has affected our practice quite a lot in the recent years. We also cover briefly about the paramix and what that means for our profession. We cover a lot of topics, and Dr. Carter in the first 10 minutes will show that he has had extensive experience, not only in OMS, but also the the business side and the healthcare administrative side of oral surgery. Now I bring you Dr. Carter. All views expressed on the show and the following episodes belong to the host or the guest and do not represent the opinions of any entity. Okay, Dr. Carter, welcome to the show. Marcus, thank you for the opportunity to chat. You know, we spent about 30 or 40 minutes on the technical difficulties, but I'm really glad that we got this figured out. Well, at least we can see each other partially. We can hear each other, so we can we can pass on the knowledge, right? Yeah, so for the listeners, so Dr. Carter can see me on uh, the FaceTime, but I can't see him. So our social cues might be a little off, but we'll do our best. I was introduced to you by our mutual colleague, Jeremiah Gilge, who is at your Oral Surgical Institute. Uh, he's an intern there, and I'm really glad that he connected me to you because you know so much about oral surgery's history. You know so much about oral surgery's expansion into the hospitals, but you also have a lot of commentary and opinions on where oral surgery is going. And I think you have expressed concern with that through your research publications and so on in our prior conversation. And so before we get to that main topic about ambulatory surgery centers, I want to just ask you kind of what your background is and what do you do now? 
I've been in this field about 40 years. Uh, I, I originally came out of a, one of the early dual degree surgical training programs. And uh, after that, I, I had a stint in academics. I was in academics for six years. And I was running a training program in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, where we were training surgeons. And in the middle of my tenure there, we converted that program from a three to a five-year MD program. Uh, it was like a lot of academics. I tend to build the future the way I've been taught. And so we make those changes going forward. Along that path, I was given some additional assignments, and one of which was to be chairman of the credentials committee of the hospital. And the second assignment was to join the Carl Foundation, which was the organization that owned the hospital and the pharmacy and a number of strategic business units. So as part of that education, they had to take a doctor and kind of transform me into a business person so I could think analytically. And so as part of that process, they sent me to courses and different things. So I attained something comparable to like an executive MBA with emphasis in healthcare over that period of time. At the end of six years, uh, I just, my, my children were getting older, I had four children, and uh, I wanted them to have educational opportunities that were not available in that small Midwestern town. So I moved back to, to Nashville and into private practice. And I bought a practice that had been in existence since 1950, had two members in it. And we expanded ultimately from one office to five offices. In the process of doing that, I really missed the, the academics. And so I started a privately funded fellowship. And I know you had Dr. Dirks on one of your previous contacts interviews. So we talked about practices that have fellowships and kind of how that transforms the industry. Well, this was early on. This was in 1986 we did this. We had a fellowship program that lasted for about 17 years. And it was totally privately funded. And people would complete their residency and they would come work with us usually for a year. Occasionally, some of them would join our group. Most of the time, they would practice for a year, then go off on their own. Several of them have gone back into academics. The chairman at the University of Louisville and the chairman at the University of Utah actually were former fellows of ours. So we continued that strain of basically offering a fellowship in concert with the private practice. And we did that for, like I say, a number of years till the changes in healthcare prevented those types of innovative programs. And the changes that, that came about was, number one, Dental licensure was kind of difficult for people to get after they spent three to four years in oral surgery. They didn't want to take their dental board to do a surgical fellowship. The second thing that happened was the insurance companies required people to be credentialed in order to be paid, which was more complicated and took a lot of time. And the third thing is the hospitals really were not that interested in credentialing somebody just for a year if they were, going to, they were not going to be a chronic admitter. So all those economic factors and regulatory factors led to the, to, to, uh, the cessation of, of that project. You probably may or may not know, Marcus, that in those early ages, early early days of fellowship development, there were kind of no standards for fellowships. There was a group of people in the United States that had these, which were privately based. Uh, Larry Wolford, of course, had one in Dallas. Uh, Ken Rotskoff had one in St. Louis, and his was principally orthodontic. Larry's was principally orthodontic. Ours was kind of a hybrid of orthodontic TMJ uh, with a heavy base of outpatient dental alveolar surgery as well. Um, and the idea was we were looking at the ENT colleagues and saying, well, they've specialized into you know, otology, into head and neck cancer, into allergy, and that we should probably, into facial plastics, that we should probably do the same thing. And there were no rules, there were no regulations. It was kind of the wild, wild west of fellowship development. So all of us that were involved with this basically said, well, Let's just play it out for another five years and we'll kind of see what happens. And then you fast forward and you see that basically the concern of Amos and all the program directors was they didn't want to start fellowships where the fellowship experience was going to dilute the academic exposure of the residents. You know, it was a caseload problem. Ultimately, Amos did not want to 
endorsed the idea of orthodontic surgical fellowships because of the case dilution. But what they were interested in is probably expanding the scope into oncology, expanding the scope into cosmetics, and expanding the scope into craniofacial. And so those were the three fellowships that kind of came out of that that embryonic stage that were ultimately had been evolved and defined, and more importantly, ultimately were funded by Amos. So it was an interesting stage to the process of that because the other fellowship at that time was John Griffin, who had one down in Mississippi, which was a cosmetic fellowship, and that one's still in existence. That, that was a whole history on this development of fellowship programs for oral surgery. And this is a great benefit to have you on the show because you've gone through this firsthand, and all I have done is heard about this or read about it. Now, Right now in Nashville, what do you do in terms of just your day-to-day? Are you still in prior practice? Are you still running the internship? I've made a transition. To sum it up, basically, uh, from 1986 to uh, 2020, I was at the Oral Surgical Institute. I was the founder of that organization. And like I say, after our fellowship closed, we sponsored internships. So we, we took individuals that wanted to become oral surgeons that didn't match, and they needed like a PG year. Because over the course of time, there used to be anesthesia internships that people could do for a year, then get into oral surgery training programs. But those progressively kind of have died out over time. And so uh, people began to develop non-categorical internships, uh, some of which are associated with programs and some of which are not. So in 1999, we started that and we continued that at, at OSI up till up to the current day. I left OSI uh, last summer. And I left to start another company, which is called OMS Logistics. And OMS Logistics is is a uh, it's a development company that was set up to uh, to provide kind of turnkey operations, oral surgery uh, services to to large DSOs. So to answer your question, the OSI fellowship still exists. I'm not affiliated with it anymore. I've started my own program through OMS Logistics, where that's where your colleague Dr. Gilgey is working where we take individuals that, that have great potential or interest in oral surgery and they want to spend a year getting some clinical expertise and to know a little bit more about the specialty. And they spend a year with us and then hopefully they match or they go on to the career path of their choice. You have such an extensive history in both prior practice, academics, and you're also a businessman, which is something I really admire about you. I think it is crucial for surgeons and other healthcare professionals to know the business side so that you know how insurance reimbursement works. You know how to manage your practice and so on. And I guess before we get to the main topic of the show, I mean, you're in your 70s? Early 70s. <laughs> what continues to motivate you to continue doing this? Well, there's kind of three things. There's a certain magic to what we do. It has magic in terms of surgical expertise, treating pain, alleviating pain, alleviating anxiety. I tell the interns I work with every year, I said, I said, this never gets old to have somebody come in who's a panicked 16-year-old child. He's had their wisdom teeth taken out, their parents doting over them, and everybody's in a panic. And you can make that experience just magical for them. You can basically take away the anxiety. You can do a very efficient surgical operation. You have excellent outcomes. The patient wakes up, and they're just, they just take that sigh of relief. And they say, thank you. That's, that's so powerful. And that's why, you know, as we go through these conversations of why oral surgeons need to continue to be able to give anesthesia, it's important. It's so much of what we do. and it's, it's so much of what brings tremendous satisfaction to the patients, to the general practitioners we work with, and also to us as, as individuals. 
I think the second thing is, is the ability to kind of uh, keep on learning. And one of the things I was most concerned with when I left academics, and I talked to I talked to my residents when they left, and what was their life like? Well, they joined a practice, and they were the second or the third doctor, and they were by themselves in the satellite. You know, they, they were pretty isolated. And, you know, that's a very different milieu than what you have in academics, where you're rounding with everybody, you're having lunch with everybody, you go to have a drink with somebody after work. That socialization very quickly uh, gets dissipated, and you can be very isolated in an office. I didn't want to be there. And that that's why I continued to just take the financial risk and support the fellowship of these internships going forward because it, it was camaraderie. The third thing is somebody once said, you, you got to hang out with young kids because you, you can learn cool stuff. You know, I mean, if you don't do that, then you, you kind of become a old and crotchety and you don't learn about Zoom and you don't learn about uh, all this technology. You don't learn about Zencast, Zencaster. Yeah, you learned about Zencaster today from me. Yeah, so then, then, you, then you become behind. But what, what I did tell you is that uh, along the way in, in 1986, when we opened up that surgical practice, we, we actually instituted our own electronic health record. That was one of the reasons, that, one of the reasons I left the, the clinic, because I was interested in electronic health records at the time. And I'd gone to an excellent course out at Stanford on electronic health records and how to do it. I have to understand, Marcus, this was before the mouse was invented, right? But we, we had a character-based system in five offices with dedicated electronic wi- lines going to five different offices. So we had electronic health records in real time in 1986. We, we built a huge database. We had you know a couple hundred thousand patient records there, all in a central repository that that's, you know still exists today. So, so the, the adaptation of technology requires that you continue to learn and be around other people that, have, that are more digital natives than us geriatricians. I think Dr. Engelstad in my second episode said something along the lines of, if you don't change, you die. And you truly are learning so much, Dr. Carter, you, I mean, you just won't stop. I think that's pretty impressive. Now, I really liked your article just on JOMS, talking about OMS and about this topic, but you do talk a little bit in the beginning about the challenges for OMS going forward. Can you just briefly outline what you think OMS has to face in the next 10 to 20 years? I think there's a couple of issues. One is we have to decide what we want to be. You know, all this, if you go back and you I pointed out Jim Hupp's article about go you know, back to the cottages and kind of where we are and who we are. You know, we started out as a dental specialty. Then we became the, the alpha dogs of the dental specialty. Then we became a specialty of overachievers. That allows us to go ahead and cut skin and do all the things that uh, you've heard about we couldn't do, admit people to the hospital. And then we became citizens in the hospital. And, and now uh, what's happening is uh, we're, we're being tested again because there's a whole lot of economic forces out there that are, are shaping our specialty that I think, quite frankly, a lot of people don't know exist. And I think we have to decide, if you look at the specialty, I remember when I was in Connecticut and there was a, a very well-known double-degree surgeon there named Morton Goldberg. You probably have read his books or Topazian and Goldberg, the book on infections, the classic book. Mort Goldberg had, had gone back to get a medical degree and he said, you know, he said, Jeff, I think this is a bad idea whose time has finally come. Now, this was back in the late 70s. You know, I, I left Connecticut, it was a, which was a single degree program. And I opted to go to, to Vanderbilt, which was a dual degree program. And I did that because I wasn't sure what the future was. And around me, I had a, a number of single degree oral surgeons that were in, practicing in Connecticut. And they were highly frustrated because they couldn't in the state of Connecticut, you can't fix a nasal fracture without a medical degree. And, and they were being banned from doing this or banned from doing orthodontic surgery. The young people that were there said, look, you don't know what the future is, but if I were your age and I had the pedigree coming out of Connecticut with medical boards taken as a dental student, you're crazy not to go back to medical school. So that's what I did. So 
I, I never had to deal with the issues that some of my contemporaries had to deal with, with not getting hospital, hospital privileges, not getting access to traumatology call or anything like that. I mean, I felt like I'd been a physician from the very beginning. And I think as a result of that, I, I, I kind of see the world a little bit differently. I never had the pain or the agony of the, the people that were ahead of me uh, had to deal with. Now, having said that, and as I told you, I was a believer in the dual degree thing. I, I, I converted a residency from a single to a dual degree. And I, I think it, it, it creates a different, uh, hopefully a better product. But as we go forward, there's a whole lot of things happening that are now beginning to challenge us. Uh, one of your former guests talked about you know, the issues with medical licensure. Well, medical licensure uh, is an important credential. I mean, I, I never really had as much respect for people that decided to go to the Caribbean, get an academic degree, because I felt that kind of cheapened the, the quality of the years of, of surgical service and surgical training that people that had done it the more traditional way had done it. Besides, when you go back and you look at the history, and I don't know if you've seen this or not, but have you read Lenny K. Band's paper on the history of dual degree surgery in the United States? It's an excellent historical review. And in that, he, he points out that my mentor, David Hall, you know, was one of the earlier founders of how to do this. But the whole idea behind, behind the dual degree program was that oral surgeons were getting beat up in the hospitals. And so you not only had to have a medical degree, but it was Dr. Walter Gralick that basically said, look, we need to go ahead and create oral surgeons in the same generic pathway as how the other specialties are, which means you go through medical school, you do two years of general surgery, and then you do your specialty branch point, either into ENT, orthopedics, or, or whatever. Plastics was five years, and cardiothoracic was five years of general surgery, but there was a natural break point. And so that, that gave you the same type of underpinnings and credentials uh, as anybody else. So that was the idea. So now you fast forward, you say, okay, now we got half the programs in the United States are dual degree, and guys are getting out and they can't get a medical license. So what have we done? Is the second year of general surgery really helpful? Unclear. On the other hand, what does the market need? What does the market want? You know, we'll get into that a little bit when we start talking about OMS logistics, but you can see there's been a huge change in terms of what the market wants because there can only be so many head neck surgeons. There can only be so many craniofacial surgeons, and there's only so many clefts to do in the United States. On the other hand, uh, there's a tremendous need in the world of dental alveolar surgery, and that seems to be rapidly expanding with the evolution of the DSOs. So we're kind of in the crossfires. We have to decide what we want to be when we grow up. Yeah, and I think that's a nice segue to talk a bit about the options going forward, which I think you outlined in your paper that the options to continue to be physicians and surgeons who operate in the hospital, but also keep our footing in dentistry. You talk a bit about ambulatory surgery centers, and also you talk about international travel and so on, but we won't touch too much on that today. So let's move on to the main topic of ASCs. Can you talk a little bit about what ASCs are and elaborate on the different types of outpatient anesthesia models there are for OMS? I think it's important for you to understand why I built an ASC, though. What I didn't tell you is when I was at the Carl Clinic, one of the past presidents of Amos was practicing in that neighborhood. And he said, I'm going to give you a present. I said, what's that? I'm going to put you on a committee. I said, okay, what's that? He said, it's a special committee of the Amos. Of course, I could barely spell Amos at that, at that stage of my career, but I didn't know what a special committee was. And special committee, normally most committees in Amos have a lifetime. It's one or two years to get rotated off, except for the special committee. The special committee is kind of like an appointment for life. And the special committee was on coding and nomenclature where, I, because I was both a member of the AMA and the ADA, I was elected by the AMA to be the representative for dentistry to the CPT code committee. And I, I held that position for 20 years. And that's where you kind of learn the, the DNA of the business of, of healthcare. 
And on that committee, that committee is composed. If you look at a CPT book now, CPT is the coding systems owned by the AMA. But if you look at the front of it, you'll see there's, there's representatives from every specialty that sit there. We write the codes. We represent the trade organizations to write the codes. And on the other side of it is, is the government. So the thing I learned that there was this growing concern about, about anesthesia by surgeon. And we began to see problems in the GI labs where everybody was getting concerned because uh, the gastroenterologists were giving anesthesia. They really didn't have any training. And that was, I could see very clearly that what was coming down the pike. And that was the ability of payers, especially Medicare, to be able to say that anesthesia by surgeon is not safe or we don't want to, we don't want to reimburse it. So we had to, I had to figure out a different way to be able to try to build a practice environment that was somewhere between a standard oral surgery office, an ambulatory surgery center, and a hospital to be able to practice our craft. And it was became clear at that time, I, I'm from Nashville, and if you look at the history of for-profit healthcare, it actually starts here in Nashville, Tennessee with Hospital Corporation of America. So there's a lot of really clever business people in healthcare uh, that have started numerous companies. If you actually go back and look at the history of it, there's what they call the healthcare tree of Nashville, which is probably more than almost 100 different companies that were started in Nashville with hospitals, dialysis companies, surgery center companies, and so forth. But there was one, there was one group of people that, that were building GI labs, and they were building GI labs as ambulatory surgery centers. And I happened to uh, meet one of the people, and I said, I'm interested in building one for oral surgery. Can you help me? And what, what happened to these when you fast forward? They, were, they built about 30 or 40 of these, and then now they rolled up, and they're, in, uh, they're now all are under the umbrella of a company called AmSurge. It had, it had its roots back with the consultants I used to build my ASC. So they said, well, we don't know anything about dentistry. We don't know anything about oral surgery. We don't know anything about the economics of that. So we're not sure, we don't know if it's going to work or not. And you know, as we get into the talking of the nuts and bolts of why you do this, the first question you have to say, will it work? Are you just building you know, a beautiful building or are you building a functional business unit? Because as I told you, having been in the finance committee back at Carl, the most important lesson that our, our CEO always used to say when he come into the board meetings, he says, okay, guys, no margin, no mission. And as we go through the, this iteration of, of all the young surgeons want to come up to me and they say, yeah, I want to build an ASC. And I walk them back off the shelf and I say, okay, now how is this thing going to work? And you realize that they really haven't thought it through because they really don't understand the business or what fuels an ambulatory surgery center. So that was kind of the history of, you know, they were just starting to build them. Large practices, like large GI practices, they had the volume to be able to support them. At that time, large ophthalmology or large cataract practices could support an ASC. And if you had a large practice in oral surgery, potentially there was enough, depending on your scope, of things to do to be able to make an ambulatory surgery center work. What drove those surgeons and even OMS from doing those surgeries in hospitals versus an ASC. I know you talked a little bit about how insurance reimbursements affected it, how prior authorizations affected it, and also benefit exclusions in insurance. Would you like to talk a little bit about that? It's a very complicated and convoluted topic, but basically look at it this way. In 1986, when I was in practice, if you came in and you had a mandible fracture, you could come into my oral surgery office. I could put you to sleep. I could do a closed reduction or open reduction of a symphysis fracture. I can wake you up and I can send you home. In today's world, uh, you can't do that. Or you can do that, but the insurance companies, the regulatory company, the regulatory agencies will not recognize that. So what's changed? We're still treating the same fracture. So now if somebody comes into your office and, and has a parasymphysis fracture, you're probably going to either put, put them into an ambulatory surgery center or you're going to put them into a hospital. And why do you have to do that? 
the young surgeons and people in residencies don't get is that you have to decide when you get out what you're going to be. You're either going to behave like a licensed medical practitioner or you're going to behave like a dentist. And if you're going to behave like a licensed medical practitioner, you have to have a profile of, of interactions in contracts with medical payers so that you'll pay, be paid for your services. And if you don't have that, then you have nothing. So if you decide well, what I did in 1992, I wanted what you in your previous podcast have referred to as hybrid practice. That was a standard practice for most people in my generation, at least of the the some of these East Coast brats that I grew up with. That we all, That's what we were all trying to do. We all thought we could be Renaissance surgeons. And as a result of that, we, we didn't see this as a hybrid. We just saw it as, as a necessity. So for me, it was more of a protection of the ability to do outpatient surgery in an efficient uh, ASC-contained environment than it was to move something out of the hospital. So mine was really a defensive posture to be able to keep my anesthesia, my surgeon, and then my surgical capability within an organization. And so when you do that, you really have to up your game because it's no longer just a, you know four walls of a dental office. It's now an ambulatory surgery center. It's accredited. It's, it's accredited and it's credentialed with all the insurance payers. So it becomes a profit center, if you will. It becomes a separate revenue generator. And so that's different than what's, what you're asking about is how cases get moved from the hospital to the ASC. So for you, it was a personal choice to wanting to protect that hybrid model that was normal at the time. But there must be some sort of benefit to having an ASC. I think just from my own review of the literature, there's more freedom to do what you want in an ASC, more control over the time and fees and so on. You know, let's just take us back to, because we are talking a bit more on the history of ASC in this first part. Can you talk about the major changes in history in related to insurance that has affected OMS and why ASCs seem to be more difficult nowadays? Yeah, you have to kind of look at the whole ASC history. So, you know, the, the movement started back in the late 60s in Phoenix. People were putting in ambulatory surgery centers. At the time, the operations were restricted usually to ASA one patients for healthy, simple things. And I told you my history in, you know, in the late 80s. When, and this, you have to understand that the physicians in that era were much more entrepreneurial then than what they are now. They would build their own ASCs. They would build their own cath labs. They would build their own CTs. They would build their own imaging centers. We did a lot of that stuff in Nashville. And that was just that was in our DNA. Uh, all, all the people that were my surgical colleagues at, at Vanderbilt Hospital, we, we started lots of businesses like that. And it was, you know, it was, it was, in a sense, it was like the wild, wild west, because if you had huge clinical practices and you had patient flow, you could do some very innovative things in terms of, of putting these ancillary services. What you have to understand, Marcus, is when you look at all of these additions in an ambulatory surgery center in the grand scheme of things from 20,000 feet is nothing more than an ancillary service. If you're a large orthopedic practice, your ancillary services would be an ASC, would be an MRI, would be physical therapy, would be a CT scan. Those are all additional things. Going back to the Carl Clinic, when I was at the Carl Clinic, I was on, that, on the finance committee, each one of those, we had all these ancillary services. We also had pharmacy. We had ambulatory surgery. We had all these different revenue sources that continued to contribute to the business of oral surgery. So when you look at that as an ancillary service, an ancillary service, it can be added to an oral surgery practice the same way that a cone beam could be. Now, cone beam is a different topic. We can talk about that sometime, but the cone beam basically in the dental world or the medical world, we had to go through a lot of great lengths to get the cone beam reimbursed on the medical side, but there's a whole series of things you have to do about that. But in ambulatory surgery, it's an ancillary service. From the business of medicine, you can actually perceive it as a revenue driver. 
I gave a talk at Davis meeting a number of years ago when I, I actually had the early statistics of the first five years of our ambulatory surgery center and the revenues that were created in the ambulatory surgery center boosted our top line revenue by 25% of our existing same, same operations. It was, it was lost revenue. And as you get a little bit more knowledgeable about anesthesia by surgeon and the differences and kind of what's happening there, you'll begin to understand how, how that occurs. That's surprising to hear that about the revenues that was generated in those five years. Was most of those the typical dental alveolar and sedations, or did you see also orthopedic surgery included in that? No, no, no. An ASC is like a taxi cab. It could be a checker. It could be a Ferrari. It could be anything you want. But unless there's somebody in it, it's not worth anything. The other thing you have to look at, and this is a transformational thing that's happened in medicine over time. Back in the 60s and 70s and 80s, medicine was very transactional. And it still is today, but it's becoming more population-based than transactional. So, so much of the, of the for-profit healthcare industry was based on the transactional nature of things. And all of the coding infrastructure of ASCs is transaction-based. So in the early days of ambulatory surgery, there was a governing body overseen by the government that determined what codes or what operations could be done where, and then they assigned value. So early on in Medicare, if you were opening into a major body cavity or you had an operation lasted two hours, that was never going to make, quote, the list. So in the early days of ASCs, there was a list. There still is a list. If you go to a website, you'll find by Medicare the list of procedures that can be done in an ASC. That list of procedures is actually reimbursed by different carriers. If your operation is not on the list, then you're either you know uh, a front runner or you're not getting paid or you're pushing the envelope. Now, having said that, if you go back and you ask the question, how many total joints were done at an ASC 10 years ago, the answer would be none. But if you look at the last five years, how many how many uh, total joints are now being done at ASC? Are you familiar with Becker's Healthcare? Do you read that publication? I, I have not. You need to write that name down. It's, it's because the, uh, Scott Becker, he's a combination um, lawyer and CPA. He has a publication firm out of, out of uh, Chicago. Oh, it's the it's Becker's Healthcare that's also that talks about many different aspects of healthcare. I've definitely run into this online, and I actually read a article on building ASCs through that website. He has hospitals, he has ASCs, and he just started one in dental. But he, he's a very he approaches it from a very different point of view, strictly the business and the regulatory. But he has excellent data and excellent in, information about ASCs, and I think that's important. I think that's important for us to watch as we go through this DSO transformation, because the quality of ASCs parallels what we're trying to do with the quality of, of ambulatory surgery in the oral surgery space. It's just not as formalized. And why is that? What are they measuring in ASCs? They're measuring who's done, what risk, what operation, how many anesthetic deaths, how many transfers. Because I, I think if you actually went back and look at our history, uh, if we could prospectively measure anesthetic outcomes, our anesthetic outcomes by anesthesia by surgeon in the oral surgery office probably is the same or better than what's happening in the ASC with medical anesthesiologists. But that has to be the benchmark because that's that's pretty well calibrated now. And do we not have the data to show that our anesthesia is safe in the ASCs? You're a medical resident. Or are you at medical school now or are you at dental school or off service? Right now, I'm in the internal medicine portion of medical school. Okay, well, let's let's go back. And you went to dental school at the University of Washington, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, so, so what happens to the anesthetic records of all those patients that were done at the University of Washington? Are they sitting on a piece of paper in somebody's chart or are they in a, a relational database? I think it's somewhere in the EHR. The... 
So, so how about the the private practice oral surgeon that took your tooth tooth out? Where's his records? Somewhere in the office. Somewhere in the office, right? So they're not visible. It's not data. It's not retrievable. And and therein lies the problem. So when when I compare you to, I mean, us as oral surgeons to GI people or to um, cataracts, and you look at Becker's, you look at the outcome of what they know about ambulatory surgery. They could tell you how long it takes to do a cataract, how long it takes to how long it takes to get to the splenic flexure with the GI. There's nothing about that about how long it takes to do a wisdom tooth. There's nothing about that that it talks about. And the reason is because it was all done either in the hospital or it was done in ASCs, where ASCs and there was good data and good capture of information existed. We're still back in our cottages in these in our own individual offices. And if you look at uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the idea of the anesthesia registries. The big problem there is is how do you how do I convince you from either you know taking your kid on a hunting trip versus going home at night and entering data from all your 15 anesthetics that you did that day into a computer to voluntarily upload into a registry? It's just not going to happen. You know, so you have to have a way to be able to just skim it off the top. On the other hand, if you're at the University of Washington and you're using Epic or one of the other large uh, EMRs. That information can be skinned, it can be uploaded, it can be evaluated, we can determine safety. So we're too fragmented to answer your question. So there is not that information. What do we have? We have we have anecdotal stuff that comes out of you know individual research projects. You have the tremendous paper that uh, David Perot wrote a number of years ago. You probably saw that. It was back in the late 90s, early 2000s, about the, the big anesthesia thing. I think Tom Dotson was maybe a co-author on that one. And then also you have the issue of you have OMSNIC because we've been self-insured for almost you know, 27, 28 years. But, but to a certain degree, OMSNIC doesn't even have data because all they have is information that says they sent out a survey. They said, how many people did you put to sleep this year? Right. And they, they, have, they have the worst case. They have the catastrophes. They have, they have the anesthetic deaths. They have the, the transfers. But, but there's no way that they can actually objectively denominate the success of our profession. And that, therein lies the problem, right? On the other hand, if you're a cataract surgeon, you can say, I've done a thousand cataracts over five years, and this is how many people went to the hospital. We don't have that information. I mean, that information is important because on your pre-analysis of starting an ASC, the things you want to know is how long it takes to do an operation, the fees associated with it, the reimbursement you'll get for that operation. And from what I am hearing from you is that we don't have, rather, we have that data, but it's not retrievable. When you, when you design an ASC, it's a math problem. You, you basically, it's a marketing survey. You basically determine how many surgeons do you have? How many cases are they going to, are they going to admit? What, what's the CP, what's the code for those cases? And therefore, what's the revenue in those cases? So that's the first analysis you go through to determine, do I have enough, do I have enough mass to be able to justify building operating rooms? And that, just so you know, the average cost of building an operating room in ASC is about a million dollars per room. Do I have enough headwinds to be able to go ahead and do that? The second thing is, is once you do that, then you have to go back and you have to do what's called a payer analysis. You have to decide who's paying your bills. So if you're a plastic surgeon, you say, well, I really don't care because you know I'm an elite breast surgeon in, in Beverly Hills and people just walk in and they pay cash. And that's why you see a lot of pl- plastic surgeons in, in California building these ASCs. They don't have them accredited. They don't have anything because they're basically just, they're fancy ORs. It's a cash transaction. But in order to be able to capture the insurance dollars, especially the government insurance dollars, Medicare, Medicaid, you have to then be accredited and you have to be licensed by Medicare. So when you when you look at those things, you have to figure out, do I have enough 
talent? Do I have enough patient volume to be able to make an ASC work? That's that's how you do it. You don't build it. You don't get up one day and say, I'm going to build an ASC for orthodontic surgery because you lose your shirt. It doesn't work. Uh, it doesn't work because the volume is too low and, and the margins margins are actually negative for orthodontic surgery for outpatient. Can you talk a bit more about why the volumes for orthodontic surgery is so low and why the margin is so little? I don't know how much you've studied uh, the work of Dr. Chow and Dr. Byrne that came out of the, the Harvard School of Public Health in the 90s about the RBRVS system. Are you familiar with that? You know, I am familiar with the, uh, you're talking about the, uh, it's the resource-based relative value system, but I think some of my listeners might not know what that is. They're lucky. <laughs> <laughs> Because yeah, you know uh, you know a lot about that. Yeah, well, yeah. Once I said all those all those hours in committee, you know, you, you learn certain things. And, and basically, what happened was a couple of people were sitting in Boston drinking scotch on the back patio, and they said, you know, I don't quite get why in Kansas, in Manhattan, Kansas, an open heart operation is five thousand. In Manhattan, New York, it's it's fifty thousand. There has to be something wrong here. And they basically said, okay, let's go back and look at this. And w- what they determined. And if you're a macroeconomist, what you want to be able to do is try to figure out a common factor of work in all of healthcare. That's what the relative value is. So if you can figure out what a, a work unit is of something, then you can predict how much healthcare is going to cost the United States. So with a grant from the government, these these guys at the School of Public Health basically decided they're going to go ahead and institute this. Now, this, is, this you have to understand, this was a drive at the same time when Bill Clinton was in the White House and Hillary Clinton was running her healthcare shop with Ira Magaziner and the pizza parlor, way before your time. But anyway, they were trying to figure all this out. And, and so what happened was every code at that time was born and it was given a weight. And by giving something a weight, then you could determine how much, how much a payer is going to pay. So the weight of the CPT code times what's called a, a gypsy, which is a modifier of where you practice, Manhattan, Kansas versus Manhattan, New York times kind of the risk factor. If you're a pediatrician, you're only in residency for three years. If you're a thoracic surgeon, you're in residency for 10. So you're going to get a few more points for being in residency for so a year. So there was a combination of factors that basically gave you the resource-based relative value. Well, I was we were on the committees that, that basically represented that. And it was, it was masterfully done at the time by our, the chairman was John Helfrich. And John was, he went on to become the chairman of the Joint Commission. Uh, very well respected. But John was responsible for, for being in those meetings and representing orthodontic surgery, representing oral surgery when we were fighting for a relative value of points. They have to understand how these meetings go. It's like you go into the meeting and you're a cardiac surgeon. I go in, I'm a maxillofacial guy. Somebody else comes in and he's a dermatologist. We all think what we do is important, but you can't go out of the room until you determine some equivalency between the types of services that you do. So it's a zero-sum game. And that's, that's how these changes were made. So to make a long story short, what happens with the RBRU, John Helfick did a masterful job because the weight of orthodontic surgery, a maxilla, a mandible, and a chin has the same value as a four-vessel bypass in a cardiac valve. So it has really, really, really high values. So we thought after that, well, that's going to go ahead and lock it in. Before that, before those the RBS was, was instituted, people were doing orthodontic surgery. The reimbursement for orthodontic surgery was high because there were very few people doing it. Insurance companies paid high values for it. But as soon as there was this relative value thing put in, it caused an immediate precipitous drop in what any payer was willing to pay for it. That was the beginning. So the revenue dropped. It became less attractive for surgeons to want to do it. The second, then you, you follow that out for 10 or 15 years and you realize 
in the early days of orthodontic surgery, the orthodontists were really, really excited about, about orthodontic surgery. It was, yeah, so we had all these joint meetings, everything else. So there was tremendous enthusiasm in the orthodontic, uh, in the orthodontic field. That's all gone. But the young orthodontists I see, they're, they're not banding second molars. Everybody's getting Invisalign. And basically, uh, they're not interested in these complex cases that require jaw surgery. And they're, they're further not interested in them. If, if you're the orthodontist, they send you to see uh, Marcus. And Marcus says, well, guess what? Your insurance doesn't cover it. Well, then they're going to go ahead and do something in camouflaging. So the, the lack of the declining enthusiasm of the orthodontic community, i.e. fewer referrals, the lesser reimbursement for orthodontic surgery. And then the, the important thing is a lot of the residents coming out of, of training programs have, have no interest in, in orthodontic surgery either because they may have gone to one of the training programs where they don't do much, or they, they may have gone to a place like uh, University of Pacific that has affiliation with Kaiser where everybody's doing orthodontic surgery. It's part of what's done, or they come out of the armed services. They've had a lot of experience, but there's a lot of people that come out. I will tell you in the 15 years of, of running a, a fellowship program, I had, I had people that had done one sagittal split. Okay. And they, they all came from accredited programs and they had tremendous, the variability in orthodontic training was all over the map. You wouldn't believe it. So I think those, those three things, you know, less training, Orthodontic enthusiasm is going down, uh, fees are going down, and I quite frankly, I don't think, I don't think anymore that the ninety percent of the people are going into oral surgery to do orthodontic surgery like they were in the seventies. From what I know about the, so in terms of orthodontists, they shy away from orthodontics and they don't like to work with it sometimes because there are reports of when the insurance would authorize the treatment of ortho, orthodontics. But then later on, you have to get pre-authorized for uh, the orthodontic surgery. And from what I understand, you can't get prior, prior authorization until you're closer to your surgery date. And some patients get denied that prior auth. Then the orthodontist has to go back and re-treatment plan to take out surgery as an option. That has happened. I, I will tell you anecdotally, you know, when you're dealing with like the Medicaid population was a huge number of kids. This happened in Tennessee, and I was on the advisory committee for that time. And I said, there's two things we have to protect in this medical dental separation because the dental benefit comes from one area and the medical benefit from orthodontics is a totally different company. But when it's the government and they're the same, we had to protect that because the, the ramp-up time for a child entering orthodontics had to basically ensure that on the medical side, the medical payer was going to go ahead and pay that when they came up for, for jaw surgery two years later. And we actually wrote that into law to be able to fix that because we knew the codes. We knew precisely what was going on. And we knew that this is a problem that had existed, but it still exists in commercial payers too. I mean, I'm told that in California, if you run into that, what you do is you quit your insurance plan and you buy Kaiser. Then everybody knows you can go get your orthodontic surgery. Why do you think that orthodontic surgery volume is on the decline or rather the interest for orthodontics isn't there for residents? I think it's on the decline because young residents coming out don't feel comfortable doing it. And I also think that they're not very efficient at doing it. And it's like riding a horse. Once you get away from it for two years, it's very, very difficult to go back. I'll give you a couple of examples. I mean, when I was running a training program in the heyday, we would do three two jaws in a day. That was how I trained my residents. Okay. They were very efficient. They could do that consistently. And today, the guys that are still practicing, they, they still they have continued to do orthodontic surgery. They can still do that. But what I didn't realize that those guys were outliers. So the, the comfort level, it's like anything else. It's like 10,000 hours. If you've had the orthodontic base, you can do it. 
But the farther you get away, and then if you're in practice, you're not by yourself, you don't know who your assistant is, all those things begin, the support systems begin to make it much, much, much more difficult. And if you can't do these efficiently, most people tell me that, okay, I, I do oral surgery for four days. The fifth day is my hobby day. I go do jaw surgery, you know, because they know that they're losing their shirt. They know they got five people back at the office they have to fund, and they're going to get, you know, $850 to do, to do jaw surgery. And they just, just, that doesn't make any sense anymore. I mean, I will tell you that when we had our fellowship, we had three people that did nothing but insurance prior authorization for jaw surgery, three full-time salaries that did nothing like that. And, and so you can see after a while, but it's a reimbursements drop. You can't afford people to do the calls, write the letters of you know, author, authentication or authorization anymore. There's so much work that it just wasn't worth it. No prudent business person would say this makes sense anymore. And yet it was wonderful operations. It helped a lot of people. We had excellent success. We had excellent outcomes. But yet the market is the market has spoken and the market has devalued it. If you're a young resident coming out and the market says, okay, a dental implant's worth fifteen hundred dollars and a two jaw osteotomy is worth fifteen hundred dollars, how are you going to spend your time? What risk do you want to take? And if you can't do that operation in a very efficient, you know, without complication, uh, methodology, you're probably not going to do it anymore. It's a challenge because a lot of residency programs are seeing a decreasing volume of orthodontics. I think, I mean, just in the past 10 years, just nationally, the number of orthodontic surgeries done has decreased. And I just wonder why that is so, because, or I guess this is my hypothesis on why that is so. When you have a knee problem, it's obvious if you're a runner, you know you have a knee problem. And so you'll go see an orthopedic surgeon or a doctor about a knee problem. And so there are signs that patients will realize that will motivate them to go see someone. But with jaw surgery, most patients don't know that they have a retronathic mandible. There was some papers talking about patients lack their own self-awareness of their orthognathic problems. And so I, that's why I think that orthognathic surgery has always been low and is on the decline because patients don't really think about it. Two, residents don't want to do it because reimbursement drives them towards doing more dental velar surgery. And now, but you know, in light of that, I insurance has classified orthodontic surgery as an elective procedure, to my understanding. And unless it's a medically required surgery, I, I don't think insurance companies are that motivated to cover it. I am curious though, if you have seen a recent upward trend of surgeries done ever since obstructive sleep apnea has become more popularized in kind of medical literature. I, I saw it about seven years ago, but it kind of spiked and it declined. Sleep labs were another one of those ancillary services that neurologists or pulmonologists could basically develop and uh, actually see and screen a lot of people. And if you look at the if you look at the sleep business as to what's happened, how the sleep business has it had a huge peak and then it's really died off. And the, and the reasons for dying off is the reimbursement declined. Remember, you know, back 10 years ago, you saw a sleep lab in every corner. The technology's got better so you can do your own sleep studies at home. The number of people coming through the sleep labs has fallen off. And so as a result, you're seeing fewer referrals for, for sleep apnea. So I think, I think just like the orthodontists have kind of lost interest in, in, in uh, sending patients over for orthodontic surgery, that sleep apnea is a different, different issue. But clearly, the, the medical benefits of that are, are phenomenal. They're very well documented. Uh, here in Nashville, Scott Boyd has worked with the foundation and done a lot of excellent work on the outcomes of MMA for sleep apnea. And it, it's clearly, his, his, it's in the medical literature as a, an established uh, surgical procedure with, with profound medical necessity. But having said that, 
those are some of the most difficult orthodontic surgical cases that you will do. I don't know if you've done any yet, but I mean, not these, most of these people have metabolic syndrome. They have huge necks. They're, they're moving jaws into sleep apnea patients, or, or, plus they're you know, medically compromised anyway. Uh, it's not the healthy 17-year-old patient with a retronathic jaw. You brought, you brought up another point, though, is that people don't necessarily see that they have a small jaw. They don't correlate that with a sore knee. You know, it's a non-weight-bearing joint, and you typically don't see the problems. If you go back and look at, we, we did a, a study about 20 years ago. We were looking at how to move orthodontic surgery into a self-pay outpatient surgery basis. So we had a meeting there, and we, there were some people that we met from from England at the time, and, and, and the British literature has this very famous, these three letters, it's called WTP, which is willingness to pay. So the, the question is, in the grand scheme of things, how, how, can we orth, how can we offer a package deal for orthodontic surgery that would basically take care of the orthodontics, the surgery, the anesthesiologist, and the operating room? How can we package that whole thing together to make it an attractive bundle? And we were, we were basing our numbers when we were trying to do this uh, with the early days of ASCs. How can we basically get that number down so it's digestible? You know, is it equal to a car? Is it equal to a TV? What is it, you know, what is in people's mind? And then also, how is the pie divided? What's the operating room worth? What's the anesthesia's time? What's the, what's orthodontics and so forth? And so then you then you try to once again it's a zero sum game how you're trying to get the price down so it, it's affordable to to be able to make it work. And, and some people have tried that, and some people have not. But I, I'm not aware of too many people now that I mean, with any sense of consistency or regularity, are still doing high volumes of orthodontic surgery with in a self pay model. But there's a few. I mean, I think. Probably Larry Wolford was one of those people, or Jeff Posick out in, in uh, Virginia before he retired. He, was, he probably was still doing a, a fair number, but not day in and day out, not like like it was in the 80s. Very different. Hmm. So the self-pay model is the dream for not only oral surgeons, but for dentists and other healthcare providers. It's an urban legend. <laughs> it's an urban legend that uh, that is unobtainable, I think. Um, but, you know, with orthodontic surgery, I... I, I am optimistic that it, the trends will go up with more and more people being diagnosed with OSA, um, more and more patients realizing, hey, I might have a sleeping problem. But I'm also more optimistic because of the the recent trends of gender-affirming surgery. I think social media has a huge impact on this. Um, it has made the transition from being a male to female or vice versa more acceptable in today's era compared to the past. And is you know in here in Oregon, orthotic surgery isn't covered by state insurance, but if you have if you are going through that transition, it is. Um, if you are transitioning, the state pays for the orthotic surgery. What do you think about that on the impact of orthotic case volumes as we go forward? A, I was not aware of that. B, it's kind of hard to imagine. I've sat I've sat on a lot of government panels and insurance company panels as a consultant, trying to basically looking at new codes and new innovations and medical necessity of things. You know, the cochlear implant comes along. Is that should we cover it? Should we not cover it? You know, but but the idea of basically adding cosmetic surgery for gender identity training, I'm actually, I'm not surprised it got passed in Oregon, but uh, I'm surprised that uh, I mean that that doesn't seem to me like it's going to be a national trend that's going to drive a lot of volumes of orthodontic surgery. I may be totally wrong. Mm. I, I don't know. But it just mm. seems to me like a, more of a, a, a local decision. Because it, it's it's a little bit hard to imagine because, I mean, why that should be any different than, than you know, generic cosmetic surgery. Uh, is, is that included in Oregon in the, in the, in the government plan? 
you know, I'm not sure about that. I, I should look into it more and I, I'll direct my listeners that way. But, you know, right now, gender dysphoria is a, I, I believe, I mean, it is a medical diagnosis through GS, uh, the DSM-5. And in Oregon, if you have that diagnosis and you are transitioning, you can make your mandible smaller or larger uh, appearing so that you can go to the gender that you feel most comfortable in. And I think that, I don't think this will be a national trend because I think politics does differ depending on where you live in the United States. Uh, however, the it gives oral surgeons the opportunity to not only use OSA as the medical diagnosis, but also the gender dysphoria as a medical diagnosis to drive uh, insurance reimbursements. Uh well, you're right. It does give another, um, you know, acceptedly common diagnosis, um, but the diagnosis does not necessarily drive insurance reimbursements because and it's not like there's this huge wave of pressure on insurance companies to pay more. I mean, it's all the work I've done for, you know, years and years and years in coding. I've never seen that phenomenon. Never, 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 never. Somebody goes up with a new operation and they, they want it to be valued at a high grade. That just, just doesn't happen. You know, you can look at things like in the history of, uh, of of surgical services. Do you know what a tram flap is? But you know, twenty years ago, it was every plastic surgeon was doing it. it was an abdominal free vascular transfer to be able to put tissue from the abdomen up to the breast. You know, and plastic surgeons would you know they would they would strut around with their years of general surgery training and vascular surgery, doing these operations for twenty hours, and all of a sudden the insurance company devalued it, and nobody does them anymore. So, I mean, you see, I've seen trends like that happen where operations come up. Now, with anthic surgery, the, the, the procedures are they're well-established, they're safe, and they're, they're predictable. You know, but in terms of why you're doing them, it's, you know, I, I don't know. It's, it's a delicate social balance between obstructive sleep apnea and a respiratory arrest versus, you know, gender identity. Th- that all has to be worked out. Those are tough decisions, you know, in terms of anytime you try to increase the, uh, the scope of what's covered and the government's at the, at the seat, uh, those become very contentious discussions. I mean, you figure you know, if you if you're going to argue when you have a colonoscopy, the government says, "Well, you don't need an anesthesiologist. You don't need to be put to sleep for a colonoscopy." So, so they they go both ways. They'll, they'll move from some funds from some place to put it somewhere else. But that that's an interesting thought. But the other thing you have to look at is, okay, what percentage of the population is going to be you know transforming? How does that compare to the incidence of sleep apnea? Sleep apnea is probably going to be a hundredfold multiple over that, I would think, you know, just in terms of incidence. And that, that's the problem with oral surgery is that the diseases that we treat, other than the impact of wisdom teeth or, or caries and periodontal disease, are, are not, you know, huge, huge, huge epidemiologically, not like osteoarthritis of the knee. It's not the same. We're dealing with these small things, you know, cleft lip and palate, you know, what the incidence of that is, you know, cranial facial abnormalities, very, very small, head and neck cancer, 40,000 cases a year. You can't build practices or institutions or groups or even a specialty around small numbers like that. Just You just can't do it. Do you think, though, with social media and more and more people seeing before and after photos of orthopedic surgery, I think a lot of people on, let's say, Instagram or other mediums, they'll post their surgeries. People are very proud of it and they're very happy with the results. Um, and most of them look better than their prior um, faces. Do you think that will have an impact on patients' perception of their own problem and thus increase the volume of surgeries that happen? Oh, yeah, good point. The British people tried to, a number of years ago, tried to figure this out. You know, the question is, 
you take somebody that's retrodathic and you take somebody who's prognathic and the question is what's their perception Pe- people's own perception is they can they can perceive themselves as looking like Jay Leno you know they have a very protrusive jaw they they can understand that because if they're a football player they know they wear a, chin, a large chin strap on the other hand the perception of somebody looking like Andy Gump is is not so real because their mom looks like that their sister looks like that and they consider that to be kind of the common and so the now on the other hand, with facial recognition software and the ability to see yourself in three dimensions, then you can begin to see that. If on, on Instagram everybody starts posting profile cases cases of patients who are class two and they realize, oh my gosh, I have a double chin, that's not very attractive. I think I'm gonna get that fixed. That could be. Do I think you could base a practice on that? Categorically, no. I mean just just from a, a frequency or revenue standpoint, I don't think it's possible. It could be it could be a coming social trend, but it's it's kind of it's still there in the weeds. That's difficult to hear because I was thinking that with the increase in orthognathic surgery volumes that might happen with all these different trends happening, I thought it would make it easier for oral surgeons to then think about having an ASC to operate in. Because operating in an ASC can generate more profit for each case when compared to operating in a hospital. So I, if more and more oral surgeons opened up ASCs, could they, one, fulfill and do more orthognathic surgeries? And two, make it a norm for oral surgeons to enter this market and essentially save this portion of our specialty? Yeah, I would say um, categorically the answer that's no, because, you know, it's the same old thing. If you build it, will they come? If, if you look at the people that have built uh, ambulatory surgery centers, the ortho and I don't know how many there are. I mean, you probably could get this information from OMSIC because if an oral surgeon surgery group has an ASC, they have, a, have to have a secondary policy because most of them are not really part of the same practice or they may or may not be. They're usually a separate licensed entity. So you can figure out how many people have those. And you can actually go back and ask the question of, of, of that subset of people that have ambulatory surgery centers, what, what kind of operations are they doing in them and get a sense of what's happening today. But, but the idea that just because you have the capacity of an operating room, an anesthesiologist, and a capable surgeon does not necessarily mean that somebody's going to walk through the door. And if, if you don't think that's the case, look at all the other stuff we do. Look at, look at the cosmetic surgery. Look at all the, your colleagues that have gone and done cosmetic fellowships. And then you look at them five years later, 10 years later, 15 years later, what are they doing? They tend to, that tends to fall off. It's not growing. It's falling off. And I just seen that pattern over and over and over again. And I, I mean, I thought that sleep apnea would actually, you know, rekindle the interest of younger people. But the other thing I remember, most of the people with sleep apnea, a great number of them, are using ASA threes, or they're they're not exactly the healthiest patients. And so on the on the issue of the scale of of medical medical risk, you know, is that somebody who's who you want in an ASC versus not want an ASC? You know, because you're, you're right there on the border between you know, sick and sicker with, with somebody who's got sleep apnea. I mean, in the early days of sleep apnea surgery, it wasn't uncommon. You go back and read the early papers. Everybody spent the night intubated in the intensive care unit. You know, that was very common. Well, you can't do that in ASC. In ASC, you got to do that, that operation in two and a half hours, you know, with rigid fixation. They got to be out the door. Yeah, I think in the ASCs, they generally see um, ASA class ones and twos with a post-operative time of about 23 hours from what I remember. And I guess, so if you have a OSA patient who is an ASA3, you might not want to deal with the risk of operating on them, outpatient. Oh, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. I understand that. I mean, ASC, ASC is not, it could st- it varies from state to state. Not every state will allow an overnight stay. 
if it's an overnight stay, then then you're really masquerading as a hospital. Hospitals don't like the competition, so they usually don't let that happen within the regulatory environment. Yeah, but the ASCs were not designed historically for long stays. Now, I will tell you this. You know, if you look at what's happened to the ASCs now with these total joints, I mean, a good orthopedic surgeon can do a total joint in you know, less than an hour, and those, pac- those patients are going home several hours afterwards. But that that's a skilled surgeon who knows exactly what he's doing, who's got a very well-defined team that can to cons- consistently do that operation within that period of time. That's not the guy that once a month does, an or- does a total knee. That's not who's doing that. These people are, they're, they're focus factories for that particular product line. That product line is total joints. Your idea would work if you had a focus factory for an ambulatory surgery center for orthopedic surgery. You'd have to have enough volume to go through. Um, you know, there's, there may be a few examples of that. I mean, that the, Dr. Farrell's group and Dr. Tucker's group in North Carolina, they, they were experimenting with that. They have a certain volume. But you also got to remember that North Carolina is one of those peculiar states where uh, the North Carolina insurance companies were pretty friendly to orthodontic surgery historically when they were in their heyday you know, doing that. I don't know if that's continued or not, but but that that's what you got to watch out for because you could have a shift and change of the wind and all of a sudden your entire product line disappears. And you're referring to the Charlotte program? Yes. Mm-hmm. Dr. Carter, we're kind of coming to the end of uh, the part one of uh, this topic. The last thing I want you to discuss a little bit more about is this thing called the payer mix. I'm familiar with it. I'm not a master in it, but I think a lot of my listeners, especially dental students, residents, and maybe new surgeons might not know what the payer mix is. Could you explain what that is and why it's relevant to oral surgery? Yes. We talked a little bit about resource-based relative value. I'm going to address this on the medical side that we could back into the dental side. But if you're trying to determine the value of an operation, and the operation is, let's say, it's a closed reduction of a mandible fracture, and let's say uh, every every payer has what's in the in the medical industry known as the conversion factor, and the conversion factor is the multiple that you multiply by the RB by the relative value to come out with the fee for that particular procedure. And not every multiplier, not every conversion factor is the same. So if you look at this, you say, let's say you got you have five payers. You have Medicare, you have Medicaid, you have a commercial, you have workers' comp, and you have self-pay. In, in a fee-for-service environment, the self-pay payer will pay you 100, 200, 300, 400 times, whatever you, whatever you set the, the freight-bearing weight at. Medicare is going to pay you a certain number. So the Medicare multiple now is, is about, it was about 35. And there was a difference between if you were in cognitive services like evaluation and management services, it was lower. If you were in surgical services, it was a few point higher. But, but how they control health costs from a government standpoint, they keep on depressing that multiplier, that conversion factor. And by doing that, they keep on weakening the reimbursement. So if you look at uh, the, the conversion factors for surgeons, they're going down. The conversion factors usually for primary care physicians is going up. They haven't crossed yet. So the surgical services are still a little bit higher. So whatever that number is, so take so take a number. If you have a, the easiest way for a listener to understand this, if you have an operation and the, the relative value is 100, and if Medicare has a conversion factor of 35, then you will be paid $3,500 for that operation. If Medicaid has an operation of 20, then you'll be paid $2,000 for that operation. If the commercial insurance has a, has a conversion factor of 10, you'll be paid $1,000 for that operation. So you can see very quickly, there's, there's a wide range. Workers' comp usually tends to be on the higher end of a conversion factor, and most oral surgeons don't take workers' comp. Right? I mean, orthopedics have to deal with this all the time. So when you're doing your analysis of whether or not the number of surgeons and the number of admissions 
uh, for the operations that you're doing. You're trying to figure out what the weight of that is. It has to be reduced by understanding the payer mix. The payer mix is, is really understanding the conversion factor so that you can arrive at what's in, in the industry is referred to as the charge master. The charge master basically says that 100, that 100 RVU mandible fracture by Medicare is going to be paid 3500 by Medicaid it's 2000 and whatnot. So each one of those has an independent fee schedule. How does it relate to dentistry? Dentistry is the same way. If you look at everybody has a, it all starts with the code. You have a code set and you have conversion factors, you have a price. And the price of Oregon Medicaid is probably going to be less than Oregon Delta Dental, right? That's the payer mix. And that's why if you look at most dentists, most dentists are going to say, well, my first choice is to have a fee for service practice and not take any insurance. My next choice, my next choice is to just take commercial insurance or PPO. My last choice is to take Medicaid. And I will tell you, having done this, my advice to everybody that decides to do ASCs, when you build an ASC, design your your, your financial parameters to, a, to to be able to be profitable with Medicaid rates because they're always the lowest. And if you can't you can't make it to Medicaid, don't do it because you won't have any reserve. And now I will tell you that probably most oral surgeons, a lot of them don't take Medicaid. So wouldn't even you wouldn't even know what that what that conversion factor was. Are you talking about oral surgeons not taking Medicaid for dental alveolar or for orthodontics? First of all, I don't think the majority of oral surgeons take Medicaid. And then second of all, I, I know pretty much for a fact that the majority of oral surgeons don't take medical Medicaid. Mm. And, and medical Medicaid in, is what pays orthopedic surgery in most states. So in summary, the payer mix is essentially a guide to help you analyze what surgeries are covered by what different payers to then help you plan financially on what business model is best for your practice. Precisely. Well, Dr. Carter, this was a great intro to ASCs and also the history of oral surgery of many things I didn't know about. I think on part two, we'll talk a little bit more about the specifics on building ASCs and your own experience and what you have learned through building ASCs. Very good. 